You may open your Bibles for an opening passage of Scripture to Colossians chapter 1. We want to celebrate the grace of God today. We don't need to be too long at it. I don't want this to turn into a series. We want to consider the grace that's been bestowed upon us and the truth that we know about it in this first assembly and then in the second assembly consider some false graces that are taught in the world. I hope that you appreciated Psalm 124. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side... Now may Israel say, and that's what we all ought to say together, if it hadn't been for the Lord that was on our side, where in the world would we be today? Where would we be in the great day of judgment if it hadn't been for the Lord who was on our side? But blessed be the Lord who has saved us with the second Adam, has saved us with the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary, regenerated us, and sent the gospel to us. We are blessed indeed. Many Christians talk about grace, from Catholics to Charismatics to Campbellites to Christian scientists. They talk about grace because the Word is in the Bible, and deception has to use good words. Because it says in Romans chapter 16 that false teachers deceive the hearts of the simple by good words and fair speeches. They sing and talk about grace, but they work some aspect of man's nature or a choice of man or man's works, into their salvation. There is a true grace, and we want to emphasize that in the first assembly, the proper understanding and application of God's grace. We use Colossians 1.6 for other purposes than we're going to use it right now. I read to you Colossians 1.5 and 6. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth, of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Now when we find a verse like Colossians 1, 6, and it refers to the grace of God in truth, it implies to us that there is a grace of God that is not in truth. And we will see some false forms of grace identified and named in the second assembly. You may listen to these words from Psalm 18 that was read to us just a few weeks ago in along the same lines of when it says the grace of God in truth. Listen to this. David describing his enemies. They cried, but there was none to save them. Even unto the Lord. But he answered them not. See, you can use the word grace and it not be true grace. You can call upon the name of the Lord and yet not be heard because you're his enemies because he hasn't chosen your side. But the Lord has chosen our side and he has sent us the grace of God in truth like he did these Colossians. If we turn over to Galatians chapter 1... Just a few pages away, let's see the mention of a false grace. Just to remind us that we want to steer a course, hopefully at the crown of the road, between the two ditches, the various ditches of false grace. We want the true grace of God. Galatians 1.6 I marvel, the Apostle Paul wrote a group of churches in what is now western Turkey. I marvel. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you 
into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. They moved away from the true grace of Christ to another gospel. And Paul goes on to say, which is not another. Because there's only one gospel. There's only one faith, except for perversions and counterfeits. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. We want the pure, unadulterated, true gospel of grace. We don't want a perversion or a counterfeit or a corruption made by men. Religion, by the design of Satan and the need for human works, is violently opposed to salvation by grace alone. The religious systems of the world would be bankrupt overnight if they were to embrace salvation by grace alone. It's by keeping men in bondage to their priestcraft or to good works or to payments to a church to get them into heaven that is the basis of their religion. Let me declare one fact about this up front. There is no grace for the devil and his angels. So he doesn't like salvation by grace. You know, there's only been mercy shown to the elect angels and they were elected in their original Innocence and preserved in their righteousness before God. And so they are called the elect and they are called the holy angels. There is none for the devil. If salvation was by the free grace of God alone, there's no basis to put men in bondage to any system of religion or to any church or denomination. If salvation was by the free grace of God alone, then the glorious work of Jesus Christ would be fully magnified. The devil cannot have that. So he's come up with counterfeits. If salvation was by the free grace of God alone, then there's no place for men to glory in man. Grace is key in the Bible. And we could turn to so many places. Why don't we turn to the last verse in the Bible? What does the last verse in the Bible say? While you're turning there, let me remind you that because of one of Hollywood's atheists, we have a movie out called Noah in the theaters of this country. And when you read Genesis chapter 1 verse Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 you read about the violence that was in the earth and the wickedness of man and the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually and how God was going to destroy them but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. And it was not based on Noah's works though Noah was an exemplary man of faith described in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, and described there in Genesis chapter 6. Those were the result of grace, and they brought further grace upon him by his obedience. But look at Revelation twenty-two twenty-one. Grace is throughout the Bible, because the Bible is the message of God's good news to us, his people, and it includes much about grace. This is how the Bible ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Do you know what this last book of the Bible describes? The beast, the false prophet, the image of the beast, all conspiring together, the great whore riding the Roman beast into power that was going to put to death the saints of God. They were going to be persecuted and driven into the wilderness. They would not be able to have economic exchanges with the world. They would not be able to buy or sell. This book describes the torment, suffering, and punishment and persecution that was going to come upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we're facing 
the greatest threats like that, what words are most fitting to end communication? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. How does the Apostle Paul end every single epistle of his? Right there. Paul didn't write Revelation. John liked what Paul wrote. So John used it too. By the Holy Ghost. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. When an apostle was living so far away that to get communication to a church and to get a response from that church back to him would take many days, even weeks, months, if the Mediterranean and poor sailing weather was involved, how do you commit a church? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What's coming in your life? I know death is coming, and I know taxes are coming. But in death and taxes and trouble, the day of trouble, and then culminating trouble. And then we're in the presence of the Lord, but with an overshining cloud of grace. We can face all of those things. And so, a wonderful way to end correspondence or to commit people to the Lord is, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. One more. There's so many of these, we can't spend much time on them, but look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 11. Acts chapter 15, we've got the council at Jerusalem when the apostles and elders all assembled in the church at Jerusalem in order to deal with the issue that the Pharisees had brought up that these Gentiles needed to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And so Peter takes up and explains how God chose him to be the one to first present the gospel to the household of Cornelius. And that, that begins in verses 6 and 7. We've got all the apostles and elders of the church there. That, this room is filled with more Jewish people than you've ever seen. You just got, there's no Gentiles here. There's Jews here. And they've packed a place. And it's all the authority of the early church in Jerusalem. And listen to Peter's words and rejoice at this, brethren. Verse 8, And God, which knoweth the hearts, knoweth the hearts even of Gentiles, he knew the heart of Cornelius, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. They got the same thing in Acts 10 that we got on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, the Gentile disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now do you understand that terminology in that order? The Apostle Peter in a Jewish assembly says, We're trusting the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we Jews might be saved, should be saved, like He's going to save those Gentiles. He puts the Gentiles first and tags along the Jews second. This is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in our Bibles to cause us to delight in the grace of God. You may turn to Matthew chapter 23. I'm just introducing the subject. It's a wonderful subject. Let me say again what I said in my opening from Psalm 124 this morning. You are part of a damned race. And if you're troubled by my language, go home and mark your calendars 
about the discretion that I'm showing you. Because I would like to enhance that word with God in front of it, but I don't think some of you can handle it yet. Because see, the race that we're part of is damned by God. God has cursed our race. God cursed the fallen angels. God has cursed our race. We are part of a damned race. We are a race that is going out of existence on this planet because this planet is damned and cursed. The curse is everywhere. That's why things die. That's why animals eat each other. There is violence everywhere. There is corruption everywhere. The whole creation is groaning in travail and pain together until now. But it will be delivered. But right now, you are part of a damned race on a damned planet waiting for final damnation of all sinners. And all the word means is the judgment of God. It's coming. It came upon the church of Corinth. See, people get all alarmed because they hear the word damn. But when you read 1 Corinthians 11, it says that those Corinthians, because they did not treat the Lord's Supper with the respect it deserved, had brought upon themselves damnation. They didn't go to hell. The Corinthians didn't go to hell for abusing the Lord's Supper. They lost their lives prematurely for abusing the Lord's Supper. It says many of them were weak. And many of them were sick and many of them slept. They were in the church cemetery sleeping in their coffins. Matthew chapter 23, I just want to remind you about the sobriety of the Bible and the soberness with which we ought to live. It says in Matthew 23, 33, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of his day. These were the fundamentalists. They were the graduates of Bob Jones University. I'm just using that because Bob Jones considers itself the most conservative Bible college and seminary in America, and the Pharisees were the straightest sect of the Jews' religion. So, here's Jesus. Here's how he spoke to the religious leaders of his day that were holding to the fundamentals of the faith. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? See? You're part of a damned race. And you're on a damned planet. And it's approaching its day of damnation. Thank you, Lord, for grace. Thank you, Lord, for grace. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, where would we be in the great day of damnation? Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die, But after that, the judgment. Listen, dying isn't bad. Going to hell is bad. Dying is not bad. Dying gets us out of this world and into a better world if we're a child of God under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is appointed to men once to die, but after that, the judgment. Oh, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, that I have an attorney who sits at God's right hand, who is the son of almighty God, the judge of heaven and earth. I like that arrangement. Does the father love his son? Does the son love his father? Did the son pay a full price for your sins? Will he remember you in that day? Did he see his seed? Did he satisfy God? Is it in writing to make sure no one forgets it? 
What's that book called that it's in? The book of life. Praise God for His grace. Praise God for His grace. Lord, help us to praise You today for Your grace. Do not be willingly ignorant. I need you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. You know, what I'm preaching will probably not get preached in New Covenant Church in Singapore today because they're willingly ignorant of a few things. And what they're willingly ignorant of is God has given an example of what's coming by doing it a few times before to smaller segments of humanity. Do not be willingly ignorant. You know, the greatest ignorance and blindness that you can ever have is your willingness not to see or your unwillingness to see. Look at this. i got to read a few verses to you. Second Peter chapter 3. Will you follow along with me as I read a, a rather lengthy passage? This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, Second Peter 3, in both... First epistle, second epistle, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. That's Genesis 1. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. That's Genesis 6. Through 9, the flood of Noah. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And that word perdition means destruction or damnation. It's just a different word. And I'll stop there. Notice, there are men that are willingly ignorant of historical facts of what has taken place showing the severity of the judgment of God, which we want to be thankful for because it is God's grace that has saved us from that severe judgment. They're willingly ignorant of it, it says in verse 5. How could a Jew that memorized and heard the Scriptures from childhood forget the flood? How could they remember that their God had created the heavens and the earth by referencing Genesis 1, when they said, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. But they forget Genesis 6-9. through They do it willingly. They don't want to think about that. And there are so many pastors, pulpits, and churches today that do not want to think about the judgment of God. I am an anachronism to them. I am a caveman. Because we're going to deal with the Word of God. There is something coming that the world is willingly ignorant of. We don't want to be ignorant of it, but thanks be to God, He has saved us from it. We're going to fly right through that fire while He burns this place up and melts it with fervent heat as the rest of this chapter goes on to describe. Heavenly Father, help us to remember these things. 
God drowned and suffocated every single human. He didn't care if you were a senior citizen and He didn't care if you were a sucking infant. He suffocated every single person on this planet. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God of heaven and earth. That is the God that we deal with and He hasn't changed a whit except in His choice of punishment. He used water in Genesis 6-9 through and He's using fire in the day to come. That's what it says in verse 7, the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store. That word of God, let there be light and there was light. That word of God that told Noah, get everything into the ark. And God closed the door. That God will speak the word and drop fire on this planet and burn up everything in it. He is coming in flaming fire with His mighty angels to wreak vengeance on this planet against all those that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10 This is what God has done in the past and men are willingly ignorant of it. They will go and watch some science fiction atheistic version of it by Darren Aronofsky instead of reading the Word of God and falling on their knees before the God of heaven and begging for mercy. Some of the songs that we have already sung this morning are so much better than any sinner's prayer they've ever imagined. Because we beg for God's mercy. And that's what we all ought to do. We ought to be like that publican in Luke chapter 18 that smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did Jesus say about that man? He went down to his house justified. What did he say about the man on the other street corner that said, God, I thank thee that I'm not like that publican. Oh, that's what we just read about in Matthew 23, 33, about those Pharisees, how shall they escape the damnation of hell? We need to remember and muse that God burned up the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for the sins that are now being defended, legitimatized, and legalized in our own country and turned Mrs. Lot into a pillar of salt. Was that very nice to Lot to turn his wife into a pillar of salt? It was nice. He got to get away from her. Some woman that loved the things of this world and wanted to turn back and watch her house burn up when the angels had said, do not look back, but flee for your lives to the mountains. Did God drop fire from heaven and burn up two cities? Is that, or is that just a fable? You know what? We have, we have committed And we have bet our lives on the Word of God for our lives in this world and our lives in the world to come on this book right here. It says God dropped fire from heaven and brimstone and burned those cities up, and we believe it. Do you remember in the Bible that Egypt and Canaan were on the wrong side? It's not good to be on the wrong side when God's on the right side. What happened to Egypt? Their nation was ravaged. The firstborn died in every family. The entire army was wiped out. And Pharaoh got to think about the Lord in the midst of the Red Sea. The Lord that he did not want to obey. How about the Canaanites? Did they get off any better? They were annihilated in the land of Canaan. Remember the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said about them that were going to crucify Him that they would be ground to powder. And the greatest tribulation the world has ever seen that dwarfs anything that happened in World War II came upon the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. when 1.1 million died in one city under the most horrible atrocities, calamities, tribulation and difficulties in the siege by the Roman army. God has done these things, and yet so many forget them. The angels that sinned are held in chains 
for fiery torment by the Lord Jesus Christ that's coming. They know about it. Why doesn't everybody else talk about it? When they met the Lord Jesus Christ, their opening words would be, We know thee who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Art, art thou come to torment us before the time? They know that torment is coming. And there's no grace for them. See, they didn't ask Jesus for grace. Oh Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Shouldn't they have? They should have at least tried. But what'd they say? Hey, I thought when I heard from headquarters that it was still a ways off. Are you come to torment us before that time? They know He's got all power over them. In His state of humiliation, they knew He had all power over them. That is delicious. That is sweet as the honeycomb. Oh, Lord, thank You for our big brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall always have the preeminence. He is the firstborn of our family. And He is the head of this church and its cornerstone. We love Him and thank You for Him. Revelation chapter 20, the last five verses tell us that the books will be opened. The books of our works. Every man will be judged according to his works and the book of life will be opened. And if your name is not found in the book of life, you will be cast into the lake of fire. So we ought to remember these things about the fact that we are part of a damned race living on a damned planet that's rushing toward the day of damnation. The word means judged and destroyed. So let me define grace for you. Oh, grace. Let's just be simple about it. The word grace means to find favor. But it's more than just being favored by God because the world says, the Christian world, wants to talk about unmerited favor. You know, Catholics wouldn't even say it's unmerited favor. They would call it merited favor practically because if you'll keep the seven sacraments, which are the good works of that church, you can sort of merit some part of your salvation, if not all of it. But to those Christians that we've grown up around in this city talk about unmerited favor, it's inadequate and it's insufficient. As I've taught you before for a proper definition of grace. What does grace mean? It means to be favored by God. It means to be favored in such a way we will not be sent to the lake of fire. It means to be favored in such a way our names will be in the book of life. It means to be favored in such a way that we'll be born again by the Spirit of God as the wind blows where it listeth. It means that we were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. Abundant, unbelievable favor was shown to us. But if it was unmerited favor, then we would be like those angels that didn't sin. But see, God did not save any of the angels, and He does not describe it as grace that was shown toward the righteous angels that didn't sin. If we hadn't sinned, and we were just neutral toward God then it would be unmerited favor because no one deserves to be a son of God. That would be unmerited because we hadn't done anything to merit being God's son. But it's demerited favor because we should be in hell. We should be with the devil and his angels in the lake of fire prepared for them that Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41 describes. But we're not there, so it's demerited favor because we deserve God's judgment, but we get His blessing and sonship instead. Oh, that is wonderful. 
That is incredible. Grace. If you want an acronym, do you like, I just made this up for you. If you like acronyms, grace. God rewards and clears enemies. It's not much, brother, but thank you anyway. I don't need that. But uh, God rewards, and that's what it's called in the Bible, Romans 4.4, 4, God rewards and clears enemies. That is grace. See, we're not neutral toward Him. We're enemies. It's demerited favor. Grace. You know how, you know, we pick on some of these definitions just because we want to get the doctrine of salvation up as high as we can and as beautiful as it should be. You know, the word justification, they say it's just as if you'd never sinned. Well, if it's just as if we'd never sinned, then it doesn't do much for us except keep us out of the lake of fire. But the Bible describes a whole lot more than just being kept out of the lake of fire. It describes us as being clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and made His sons and His daughters. So it's not just as if you'd never sinned. The true definition of justification is just as if you'd never sinned and just as if you had lived like Jesus Christ. The positive aspect of it. So when it comes to grace, listen to this. What is grace? God does not judge and punish the elect as they do deserve. But He does honor and reward them with blessings they do not deserve. That's grace. It's demerited favor. It's not just that He doesn't do to us what we deserve. He does things to us we don't deserve. And it is the most incredible message. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's fabulous. He delivers us from everything we deserve, and that is eternal torment in the lake of fire. He delivers us from what we deserve by being allowed to continue in the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air because we chose that. But He delivers us from all that, and then He bestows upon us favors that are unbelievable, that we should be called the sons of God. The Bible tells us in two places, 1 Peter chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, that the angels desire to look into these things because they cannot believe that God has shown so much grace toward creatures lower than them. They desire to look into these things. Brethren, fire is coming, and the angels of God, His holy angels called ten thousands of his saints <coughs> in the book of Jude, are coming to destroy this earth. But they are coming to rescue us. And the voice of the archangel is going to sound the trump of God, and the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout and deliver us by the grace of God. Oh, we better be celebrating it. We better be living it. Uh, this is the glorious doctrine of grace. Look at Romans chapter 11. Let's just, let's just continue another minute or two on defining grace. Uh, we like this place because there can't be any works involved. If there's any works involved, then it's not grace because the definition of work and grace is contradictory. They are mutually exclusive terms. They can't be blended together in any way. Look at Romans chapter 11 and verse 5. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. See, grace elects. 
Grace chooses people. That's what it says here. Even so then at this present time, Paul's writing Romans 11, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Out of the great nation of Israel, only a small part of them were God's elect. That's why hardly any of them believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why 40 years later, he leveled their city and burned them all up. But there was a remnant. And that remnant wasn't destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. They escaped the city by the warnings of the Lord Jesus Christ before that destruction took place. They went across the Jordan River and lived in a city called Pella. Church history tells us that. We should believe that and accept that because Jesus did tell His disciples exactly when and where to go. Flee to the mountains of Judea when you see the armies coming to encircle and destroy the city. Okay, this remnant according to the election of grace. Grace elects because uh, uh, the Bible tells us that if God had just offered grace, how many, how many would be saved? None. The Bible says there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. So if there's none that seek after God, no, not one, how many would be saved if God just offered grace? <clears throat> none. So in order for God to save anyone, He has to choose us to be saved because we are so stubborn and willfully rebellious against Him. He has to choose to put our names in the book of life. He has to choose to send His Son to die for our sins. He has to choose to send the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and give us a heart that loves Him and will obey Him. And only then will we believe and obey the gospel. But see, He did the choosing before the world began at the cross of Calvary. And when we're born again, then we believe. Then when this great terrible day of judgment that's coming, you know He's going to save us. Because He predestinated us in the beginning and that golden chain of salvation in Romans chapter 8 ends up with glorification. Romans 11.6 Grace elects. And if by grace, then is it no more of works. See, it can't be a mixture. If it's by grace, it is no more of works. There is no works involved if it's by grace. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. You say, what does that confusing verse say? It says, the definition of two words, grace and works, are contradictory to each other. They are antithetical to each other. They are mutually exclusive terms. They cannot be mixed at all. If something is by grace, there can be no works involved because grace doesn't allow any works to be involved. If it's by works, then no grace can be involved because works do not allow any grace. <coughs> because works are you earning your salvation. And so we have that definition and we need to go on in a great hurry. The wonderful doctrine of grace. The proper understanding of God's grace stands or falls with your understanding of one other Bible doctrine. Total depravity. If you have been taught the devil's lie from the Garden of Eden, and most Christians have, what was the lie from the devil in the Garden of Eden? Thou shalt not surely die. But God had said, Thou shalt surely die in the day that thou eatest thereof. So in that day that Adam and Eve ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they both died immediately. Not physically. Adam lived another 930 years, but they died spiritually. They had no desire toward God. They had no desire to repent. They had no desire to beg for mercy. 
They looked at each other and realized that they were naked. They saw the shame and the guilt of sin was already ruining the human race. They put together a few little fig leaves to try to cover their guilt. Instead of going to God to have their guilt covered by His forgiveness, they tried to cover it by man-made means. That's what they think is grace. They were fig leaf, It was fig leaf grace. Then they went and hid in the trees of the garden when God came looking for them. Why didn't they run out to God and fall at His feet and tell Him, We've sinned! We've sinned! The devil deceived us! We believed him! We chose to go against your word. Have mercy upon us. Isn't that a sensible thing to do? Yes. Why'd they hide? Because their natures had just died toward God. Their natures had died toward God. They hid and then they blamed each other. Adam blamed the woman. It's the woman that thou gavest me. Eve blamed the devil. And so they went into the blame game. All of that is to say this. Human nature is so corrupt that if God does not place His grace on us, if God does not choose us for His grace, if God does not give us His purpose and grace in Christ Jesus before the world began, none will be saved. So the real doctrine of grace and the real definition of grace depends upon another doctrine, total depravity. Because if you think that man is not totally depraved, then you will easily believe that man does his part in order to get God's grace. But that is not what the Bible teaches. By the time you end up believing the gospel and getting baptized, God's grace has been on you for an eternity. And that's... but, But I want you to see how the two go together. And you know, when no one wants to preach about total depravity... When no one wants to preach about the original sin and the representation of Adam in Romans 5. And by the way, let me take a 30-second excursus here. In the last 72 hours, I have come to the conclusion that Romans 5 is the best chapter in the whole Bible. I'm overwhelmed. I am broken. My mind is blown. Romans 5. Keep praying for me to get creative. You know how you know what I want to write? There's one thing I can't write. I want to write a little flash presentation that will have slides and maybe a little background music and preaching about the two atoms and the two trees and send it out and see if there's any of God's elect among the Buddhists and Hindus of this world done so simply Two atoms. Every bad thing in this world comes from the first atom, and every good thing comes from the second atom. And while it is far too late for us to get ourselves into the second atom because we chose the first atom voluntarily, God put us in that second atom. He chose us in Christ before the world began. And I'm just at a blank. You know, you've heard this from me for years. I'm just at a blank. But I do believe it's what I do believe God wants me to do this. So just pray for my creativity to bust forth sometime. But Romans 5 is wonderful. Romans 5 is wonderful. We must understand that man is totally depraved. See, the world, when I say the world today, I mean the religious world. The religious world wants to think that man is sick. That he's just sick, and as long as somebody will come by with a good light dog and pony show or enough smoke and mirrors, he'll invite Jesus into his heart and get saved. But that isn't what the Bible teaches anywhere. First of all, the Bible doesn't teach anywhere that you're supposed to invite Jesus into your heart and get saved. But nowhere does it say that any man would ever do that. 
Because the natural man is an enmity against God. He's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. By nature, we are rebels. We hate God. We hate God's laws. We want to do things our way. And unless God puts His grace upon us, there will be no grace upon us. And so God makes the choice of grace. Grace is not offered, but rather given to some who were given to Christ and He given for them before the world began. And that's what Jesus said. All that the Father giveth me, I will lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. Jesus said that. All that the Father giveth me, and I give unto them eternal life. Notice the giving. There's not offerings. God gave us to Christ. God gave Christ for us. Christ gives us eternal life. That is salvation. And only then do we believe the gospel. I'm going to assume that everyone here understands the seven proofs of unconditional salvation because they all apply to the grace of God and the five phases of salvation. They apply to the grace of God because I don't have time for it now uh, to do that. But I hope that you remember some of those things. It's not an offering. It's a gift. The the will that's involved in grace is not your will. It's God's will. Let's find that out from the Bible. Let's find... Paul's favorite place in the Bible where grace is mentioned. It's it's Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Oh Lord, if it had not been for you on our side, now may Israel say, if it had not been for the Lord on our side, we would have no hope. But we have abundant hope, glorious hope. Exodus 33, Moses is asked to see the glory of God. And God has told him, no man can see my glory and live, but I'll show you a little bit of it. And so, without going into any more details of that, here's the glory of God. Verse 19 of Exodus 33, And he said, God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. Do you want to see the glory of God? Then listen to him proclaim his name and say what he is all about. Exodus 33, 19. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Mercy is not based on you willing or you wanting it. Mercy is based on God willing and God wanting it. Do you know that those people that were born Philistines, those people that were born Hittites, those people that were born Chinese, those people that were born Japanese, under the Old Testament, never heard a word of God? The Bible tells us that. If if God did not put His grace on some of them, there was no hope for them. But God did put His grace on some of them. And we find men popping up like Methuselah, like Jethro, and like Rahab the harlot. You say, well, Rahab the harlot earned her way into heaven by lying to the city magistrates and sheriff. Oh, really? I can't chase that one. That's just too foolish. God had saved Rahab the harlot, and because of God's grace in her life, she lied to her city to preserve the the lives of the spies. Now, Exodus 33, 19, when God shows His glory to men, it starts off with this declaration. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy 
to whom I will show mercy. I pick who gets mercy. I pick who gets grace. So let's come over to Romans 9 and see if Paul believed that doctrine. Somebody might say, well, that's the Old Testament and God's changed. Well, God doesn't change, and Paul liked that quotation. By the Holy Ghost, he liked it. Romans chapter 9, verse 15, For he saith to Moses, Oh, yep, we're back in Exodus 33, 19. For God saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now there is a will in Romans 9, 15, that's there four times, Whose will is it? God's will. Now, do you really want to be humbled? Are you ready to be humbled? Look at the 16th verse. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It doesn't have a thing to do with your will. It doesn't have a thing to do with your efforts. It is God bestowing his mercy upon you. Well, the question ought to be asked, how do I know that God's mercy is upon me? Do you love the Lord? Do you know that we just sang in a song a little while ago, we love Him because He first loved us? That proves He doesn't love everyone. That verse by itself, 1 John 4, 19, we love Him because He first loved us, because His love toward us has changed us. He has sent His Holy Spirit to regenerate us, and He has sent the gospel to our ears. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you're living for Him, like those martyrs' testimonies that we had this morning, then you can know that God's grace is upon you, because without God's grace, you wouldn't really care about the things of the Lord. That is why every time that a service is missed, every time that I hear about you playing with sin, every time that you neglect your spiritual spiritual duties, it, it causes me fear. Every time I neglect them, it causes me fear. Because when we are not obeying the Lord and not following His commandments and keeping them with zeal, we don't have the evidence that God's grace is upon us. Because God's grace should change our lives. But we're selfish and we're lazy. And as we're going to hear in the second assembly in a little while, there are perversions of grace and sometimes we fall into them. And one is to squander the grace of God and have it bestowed upon us in vain. This is discriminating grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, the grace of God that brought salvation down to us. Grace greater than all my sin. Praise His holy name. Romans 5, where, you know, it tells you so much in Romans 5. Why did they get the law of Moses? Moreover, the law entered that the Offense might abound, so we would know how bad we were. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That that as sin hath reigned unto death. The principle of sin in this world has reigned. It is king. It is called the king of terrors in the book of Job. It reigns. It is king. So might grace reign through life by one, even by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, we're looking for the will of God because we're, grace is discriminating. It's called discriminating grace when we think about it because God chooses to put His grace on some and not upon others. We start at verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's as good as it gets. 
to have you connected to the Lord Jesus Christ and all spiritual blessings given to you by God the Father. That's verse 3. Now, how does it happen? Verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God wipes away our sins and sees us in the Lord Jesus Christ holy and without blame. How uh, how did He do it? Verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of whose will? His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace which I'm preaching to you right now, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. There are people running around saying you've got to accept Jesus in order to get the grace of God. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Here's what the Bible teaches about accepting. God's grace put us in Christ Jesus, which made us acceptable to God. And when did He put us in Christ Jesus? Before the world began. When did we become the sons of God? We were predestinated to it, verse 5. And verse, and verse 5 tells us it was according to the good pleasure of His will. And verse 6 says that He's made us accepted in the Beloved. See, God made us accepted in the Beloved. Who's the Beloved? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my Beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We're put into Christ. That's the Beloved Son of God that makes us holy and without blame. And so now we're acceptable to God. God has made us accepted. See, we're not doing any accepting. God's doing the accepting. God's accepting us. When you get to heaven, it's not going to mean a thing to God for you to say, I accepted Jesus. What's going to matter is, God's saying, I accepted you in Jesus. That's what counts. Well, how do I know I'm in Jesus? If any man be in Christ, therefore he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We need to change our lives and flush anything in our lives that doesn't match up with the Word of God. Amen. Oh, Lord. It's free grace. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. You know, true grace is free grace. True grace is discriminating grace. True grace is abundant grace. Romans 3.24, being justified freely. You know, if there's no works involved, then it must be free. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Yes. Oh Lord, thank you. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and verse 32 on this subject of free. Verse Romans 8, 32. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Everything. All spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ are given to every single person that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ to die for. God freely gave the Lord Jesus Christ. He will freely give everything else. When it says all, the Apostle Paul is writing to the elect believers in the city of Rome. He is not writing to the world. He is writing to the church at Rome. When he says, he that spared on his own son but delivered him up for us all, he is talking about the elect family of God, not about every man, because the verse says that if he freely gave his son, he will freely give everything else. And not everyone else gets all those things. It's only God's elect that get those things. And so it's free. 
Yes, it's free. It's a gift. It's by the second Adam. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. Verses 12 through 19 are unbelievable. Verses 20 and 21 are unbelievable from a different angle. And verses 6 through 11 are unbelievable from a different angle. And the grace that we now stand in in verses 1 through 5 is unbelievable from a different angle. And if you will break Romans 5 down, first five verses, 6 through 11, 12 through 19, and 20 and 21, it's like four delicious honeycombs. Or four buckets of the finest gold. That's what David would call it in Psalm 19. Uh, Just verse 19. This is a shocking verse. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Do you know the first sin that we're all held accountable for? Adam's sin. Every baby that dies is held accountable for Adam's sin. You say it's not fair. It's better than fair. Adam is far more intelligent than anyone you ever met. Adam was in a perfect sin-free environment. He had a sinless wife. He only had one commandment to keep. It's more than fair. Every baby that's died, every miscarried baby, every person is held accountable first for the sin of our first father. Romans 5.19 teaches it. Basically, verses 12 through 19 all teach it. 1 Corinthians 15.22 teaches it. 1 Corinthians 15.45 through 50 teach it. But for right now, it's Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. We are, the whole race is condemned because of Adam. But here's grace. Look at the second half of the verse. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Oh. We had a first Adam that damned our race. There's a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who obeyed for us. And in God's view, in God's sight, we have obeyed just like Jesus did because he obeyed in our place as our representative. We had the first representative. He condemned us to death. Eternal death, the second death. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, obeyed for us. It is by the obedience of one. And then people come along and say, well, you need a priest, or you need a pastor, or you need to believe and obey the gospel, or you need to get baptized. They say all these things. No, 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 no. By the obedience of one. Who gets all the glory in what we preach about salvation? Jesus Christ gets all the glory. He's the only one that obeys. It's his singular obedience that saves us. Well, how do I know that Jesus Christ obeyed for me? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized in his name. Add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and to knowledge patience and to patience godliness and to godliness temperance and to temperance patience and brotherly kindness and charity. Make your calling and election sure. The Bible tells us all these things. The Bible knows that we're going to want to know am I one of God's elect? And the Bible tells us how to do that. But that doesn't get us elected. And that doesn't get God's grace on us. It's God's grace that comes first that causes us to want to do those things. The Bible puts it this way, that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. When you want to please God, it is because God worked it in you. That's grace. See, we're unwilling. We're His enemies. But God bestows His free grace on us. Brethren, there's so much glory to grace in the Bible. Does 
Do you want to hear the ABCs of the glory of grace? Allow me a little fun in my office once in a while. Okay? Did grace save an Areopagite named Dionysius? Oh, Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, where all the philosophers gathered. The Apostle Paul preached the gospel when he finished, and some mocked him, and he got up and walked out of that room. Dionysius the Areopagite and Tamaris and others got up and followed the Apostle Paul out. How did that happen? I'm giving you the ABCs of grace, and that was my A. Okay, God saved an Areopagite named Dionysius. Very quickly, God saved Bathsheba and David from certain death. And what did he give them? Solomon and a whole, and a whole nursery full beyond Solomon. Grace saved Cornelius from Roman superstition and a wasted life with the Italian band. Grace saved David from the heirs and sins of his house to have the royal seed as his descendant. Grace saved Esther from an orphanage in a strange land to become the victorious queen of Persia. Grace saved the family of the Philippian jailer in one great night of evangelism. Grace saved the Gadarene from a legion of devils that had tormented him terribly. Grace saved Hezekiah from certain death to live another 15 years as king of Israel. God saved Israel out of Egypt, Babylon, and countless other dangers they deserved. Grace saved Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, to follow Jesus Christ. The Bible's just full of grace. Grace saved Lydia in Philippi and opened her heart to attend to the preaching of Paul. Grace saved Mary Magdalene from seven devils and caused Jesus to appear to her first after his resurrection. Grace saved Nathaniel while he was under a fig tree and skeptical of a man from Nazareth. Grace saved Noah and his family from the flood. Grace saved Peter from his great grief after denying the Lord three times in one night. Grace saved Rahab the harlot in her house. Grace saved Saul of Tarsus. Grace saved a thief one hour before he died who had been railing against the Lord Jesus Christ earlier. Grace saved a woman of Samaria who had already had five husbands and was living with the sixth man that she wasn't married to. And Grace saved Zacchaeus after spotting that little runt in a sycamore tree. And we love Zacchaeus and we love the Lord's treatment of Zacchaeus. I have another alphabet of the power of grace, but I'll spare you. In closing, what should we do? What should we do? We find out and we're reminded that we're part of a damned race on a damned planet facing final damnation. He's going to burn everything up, melt it with fervent heat. What should you do? May I turn you to Acts 20? Acts chapter 20. Paul said to the elders of Ephesus as he met them for the last time on his way to Jerusalem, He said in verse 20 that I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. And here's what he taught publicly and from house to house. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So what should you do when you hear about the state of our earth and the state of our race and what's coming upon us and that God has grace that's greater than all our sins? How do we know that grace is upon us? If it's distinguishing grace, discriminating grace, how do we know that God chose us? Repent of your sins. Repent! Hate your sins. Hate every sin. Hate sin. Repent and change your life right now by the grace of God. If you walk out of here and you don't change your life and you don't repent, 
you have no evidence of the grace of God upon you. Paul said, I testified both to the Jews and the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believe that if you run to the Lord Jesus Christ, He will embrace you in His arms. And in His arms there are 10,000 charms. You don't have to say some little ridiculous sinner's prayer. You can pray something less than that. You can be like the publican in Luke 18 that I've already told you about. God be merciful to me a sinner. And believe that. Repent of your sins. Lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry out to God for mercy to you, a terrible sinner, without any self-reservation like that publican. Be baptized rightly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to answer God for the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're baptized, you are buried in water and you are raised up again out of water, showing a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ's burial and His resurrection for your sins. The Bible says that is how you give an answer to God with a good conscience. So be baptized. The Bible says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. A person is baptized and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and repents of their sins in sincerity is showing the grace of God already upon them and working through them. That's why they want to do those things. And lay hold on eternal life and make your calling and election sure. And the Bible has places that tell us how we can know that we are God's elect by bringing forth certain fruits in our lives, by loving the brethren, by living righteously, by being merciful and forgiving others, and so forth and so on, living the Christian life. That is how we know we have eternal life. There is nowhere in the Bible taught about making some little decision for Jesus and trusting that little decision for Jesus to get you into heaven. That is not taught anywhere in the Word of God. What is taught in the Word of God is this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. I have seen so many people invite Jesus into their heart and accept Jesus as their personal Savior in my 57 years, and I have seen the vast majority of them never live for the Lord Jesus Christ because they were not God's elect and they were never saved. This is the truth of the gospel. It's the gospel of the grace of God. His grace is wonderful. Listen, you can lay hold of it so easily and you can confirm it that that grace is yours by living out what the gospel teaches us to do. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word and may every soul here that hasn't repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and been baptized, which tells God, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to die for my sins. May every one of them be convicted. May that conviction not pass away as we leave this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.